Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and we are talking to episode 108 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, a program in which uh, I and guests over the years have been going chronologically through the Criterion Collection, and we are up to the year 1972. Uh, the three previous episodes were kind of a bit of an exception to the chronological sequence that I've been methodically plotting out over the past several years on this show. Um, we talked about films from John luc Godard and uh, kind of his political phase after he had kind of given up the new wave and the pop style of art films that he was making in his kind of prime time in the 1960s. And uh, so those three episodes kind of took me outside of the normal rhythm, and I'm going to kind of continue outside of that normal routine by talking about three films. They were all released in 1972, but we're kind of out of the chronological sequence and we're kind of bundling a few titles into this one episode. And we are talking about films from the Lone Wolf and Cub series uh, based on a very popular Japanese manga, a graphic novel uh, that premiered in serial format in 1970 in Japan, gained a pretty big following and is to this day considered one of the most important uh, works of that uh, media style. Uh, kind of comics, if you want to call them that, but with a little bit of a different uh, style and twist and really advanced the the genre and the art form uh, by telling a very compelling story about a samurai, a ronin, uh, wandering through Japan with his three-year-old son in this little souped-up baby cart, uh, an assassin for hire. And uh, these stories really caught the imagination of the Japanese public they became uh, material for a movie series that went into six films before it was kind of converted over into a TV show that ran for several more years in Japan. So we're going to do a two-part episode here. This is part one of Lone Wolf and Cub. We're going to talk about the first three films, uh, as well as another sort of adaptation of those first two. And then we'll cover the other three films in a follow-up episode a few weeks from now. So that's the scheme for today. I'm really excited to be talking about these films and really nice to have some guests who I think are probably a little bit more seasoned and experienced with the Lone Wolf and Club series than I am. And um, hey, really eager to hear their insights. So let's go ahead and introduce our panel for today. Uh, first, we got Richard Doyle. Richard, how's it going up there? Hey, it's going fine. I'm glad to be here. Yes, it's nice to hear you again, and it's been a while. I think it's been about a month since I've done any podcasting, so been a little bit of a hiatus there. Work's been busy, and I kind of gave myself a generous uh, swath of time to get ready for these these episode for, for these two episodes. Uh, but it's good to reconnect with you, Richard. Uh, yeah, we were talking right beforehand. You got a big dump of snow up there in Manitoba, but uh, you're warm and cozy and comfortable. I take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Inside right. all weekend watching movies. <laughs> <laughs> what better way to spend the time? All right. The guest number two is Jason Beamish. Jason, welcome back. Good to hear Hello. from you again. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. That's right. Uh, and then finally, we have David Seeley. And we were just talking before we started recording. David, it's been over a year, almost a year and a half since uh, you've hung out with me here on Criterion yeah. Reflections. Well, welcome back over uh, in England there. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be back. I, I didn't uh, realize it had been so long. I guess I've had so many uh, sort of things going on the last little while that, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize time flies because you know, when you're having fun, 
well, it's great to have you on and definitely, um, you know, uh, good to reconnect. I mean, I feel like I've seen a lot of you on social media, even though I've been a little bit quieter there as of late uh, for various reasons. But uh, yeah, it does feel like, you know, we, we're kind of, you know, bumping into each other every now and then. So, but yeah, when I looked at the calendars, it was May of 2020. We talked about uh, an early film by Werner Herzog, uh, Land of Silence and Darkness. It was a great conversation, but it's really uh, good to have you back. And uh, I've got a really, uh, I think this is an excellent panel. Uh, Three guys who I think have probably seen these films and and known about them for a while. So let's go ahead and uh, start just sharing our impressions with each other. So, Richard, I just want tell- to say, uh, David, yeah. I stand ready to descend to hell in the six <laughs> realms and four lives with you gentlemen this evening. I'm going to walk the demon path. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's follow that path wherever it may lead. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and just kind of hear a little bit about uh, the journey that we've been on with these films. I, I will just start by saying they're all brand new to me, uh, but I'll say more about that after we've heard from our guests. So Richard, give us a little bit of your background. Uh, uh, how long have you been familiar with the Lone Wolf and Cub series? I've been, I've been, I've known about it for a very long time in the, in the time of DVD though, I think I only watched the first one um, when Animago had them out on DVD. They weren't actually all that easy for me to find back then. I, there were one series I was, looking for and um they were released on blu-ray up by animago before criterion did but those blu-rays mm-hmm. have the reputation of not being very good so i didn't okay. uh, didn't get them kind so of snapped... poor transfers that just kind of got slapped on the blu-ray disc yeah kind of i think they were like 1080i upgrades of the dvd oh okay right? yeah um, so I snapped up this set actually when it came out and I've, mm-hmm. I'd watched them all prior to this, but I watched them as I'm prone to do. I kind of watched them all in some random order. Oh, okay. So I was actually, it was really a nice experience to sit down and uh, watch them all in the order they were made and sort of see the story develop. I mm-hmm. enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was very impressed as well. So, okay. And so what, like five, 10 years or so that you've known about them or even longer than that. Uh, longer than that, I, I, I had like back in the nineties, they were, okay. I, it was like a consumer of video guides looking for stuff to rent. And they were always like one of the series of movies listed in there that I could never find copies of, but that I, okay. I I'd always thought these sound wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that, that's one of the things I'm trying to figure out is like, how long has the legend of this lone wolf and cub kind of been a thing here in the United States? So uh, let's kind of kick it over to Jason. Jason, what's your uh, experience with this series? Well, my experience starts in a Best Buy probably 15 years ago. And I saw the Shogun Assassin DVD. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the And I fell prey immediately to the marketing. It's the impossible to keep up with a body count and he whips out his sword and relieves his victims of their heads <laughs> yeah and that's literally all i needed <laughs> okay yeah right yeah and so i picked that one up and then also two and three uh when when i f- would randomly come across them um yeah, you're then, talking about the shogun assassins yes yeah, and then and as soon yep. as mm-hmm. uh as soon as this set came out was the first time that i actually saw them in there uh, true original form. Okay. Yeah. So. And that, I think the set came out in 2015. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I don't even have the box in front of me there. So, mm-hmm. uh, aside from that, I was also familiar with it just in, uh, 
Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan, his first, well, second studio album, um, Rizza, cut in a couple dialogue parts uh, from Shogun Assassin, the, the English version, okay. in front of a couple of the tracks. So... I'm okay, also so familiar from that, yeah. So, so it's kind of made its way into the the hip hop culture and Definitely. you know martial arts uh, aficionados, uh, that kind of thing. So, so David, um, how about you? Uh, how long have you known about these films? Uh, have you been? Well, you know, my my relationship sort of with this series probably goes way way back to sort of 1980, 81, when the Shogun Assassin uh, was released in cinemas in. Uh, you know, in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm originally, from, I live in the UK now, but I'm originally from Canada. And and I have, I have very vivid memories of television adverts for Shogun Assassin and those images of the man with the baby cart and the blades coming out of the side and the, yes. <laughs> and all those things made obviously uh, quite an impression on me because I, I always remembered that vividly. But obviously in 1980, I would have been, what, like 10, 11 years old. So I was obviously too young to actually see the film. And uh, But it was obviously just remembering seeing those adverts always kind of stuck in my mind. But I never had an opportunity to, to see it or to see any of the other films for years until actually I moved to the UK. And then the, the, I remember just getting a little box set. I can't remember which company released it, but there was a DVD Box set in the late '90s uh, here in the UK with all six films in it, and uh, I just totally immediately uh, fell in love with them. They're just, oh, just so amazing in so in so many ways. So much fun and, and uh, such amazing uh, visuals and and, yeah. and the editing and the, the photography and the the, the very layered kind of uh, plots and and. Um, uh, you know the subtext and things, the the, the metaphors. Um, I just I just love these movies a lot, which is why when you said you were doing the show, I kind of uh, uh, sort of pushed myself forward to, to kind of crash the party because I thought I, I definitely would like to come on here and try and yeah. convince people that these uh, six films are uh, the some of the greatest things on earth, really, and that everyone should should own a copy. I think. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm I'm right there with you, David. I mean, like I say, I've I've really only delved into these films. I, I watched the trailers. You know, I, I picked up the box set, or you know, the when it first came out, like I say, six years ago, whenever it was. Uh, of course, there's a cool little bonus feature where if you open the outside flap, there's a little folded up piece of paper that is kind of a, a kind of a exploded schematic of the baby cart with all of the different weaponry and gadgets, kind of a and and. Criterion didn't really advertise it. It's one of those things that was kind of discovered word of mouth. Uh, it's kind of a little hidden compartment, if you will, sort of a tribute to the the baby card itself. So, but it's a beautiful edition, nice artwork, you know, illustrated booklet, uh, you know, the, the inside case, little slip case and all of that is a really impressive little package. So it certainly, you know, had the aesthetics just as far as it's kind of place as a product and as the cool illustration. Of course, this is following up on Zadoichi that had been released a couple of years prior to that. And, um, I, you know, I've been talking about the Zadoichi films, covering them on my you know, blog and podcast over the years. And we have been doing that one at a time, but, uh, just in the interest of speeding things along, I thought, well, let's go ahead and just combine Lone Wolf and Cub into a, a couple of episodes because there were four films released in 1972. 
then one in 1973 and one in 1974 to kind of close out the series. Like I said before, it transitioned over to a adapted for TV, but I don't think it carried the same cast. Uh, whereas with Zadoichi, Shintaro Katsu went on to the TV show and kind of continued that long, you know, very long saga. And to me, it feels like Zadoichi is a more successful property to translate into TV. Um, you know, I don't know what the state of Japanese TV was in the mid-1970s, but taking these films and putting them into, you know, TV, even for commercial standards and, and maybe a nation that's not quite as uptight as the USA, I just feel like so much would be lost <laughs> to try to water these these movies down into a, a you know, a kind of a pub, general public broadcast type of thing. Uh, have any of you ever had a chance to see the Lone Wolf and Cub TV adaptations? Even yes. I, okay. I, I own it on DVD. I was actually, okay. gonna, I'm actually going to watch a little bit of it. If we want to talk about it more in the second episode. Yeah, that episode. would be great. I mean, yeah. I might even try to look up a, some of those myself just to sort of get a sense of how the, how the series evolved. But uh, as David, and I think, you know, all of you, you know, Jason, your comments as well uh, have, have made clear this is a series that uh, really ups the ante as far as gore, bloodshed, uh, dark, nihilistic violence. Um, but it's not, it's to me, it didn't feel like exploitation. I mean, yeah, you can definitely say some of the spurting blood and, you know, limbs and fingers and stuff getting chopped off and, and, you know, following the, the pieces of the body as they're, they're flying in this way <laughs> and that, uh, there, there is an exploitation element to that. But I think what really grounds this series is that there's, there's real depth. I mean, there's depth of artistry, there's philosophical and political and cultural stuff being said, uh, the performances, uh, the, the, you know, the, just the aesthetics, you know, it's, it's a very impressive package. I, I would say I went into this, watching these films thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, some kick-ass samurai action, but this went to a level that surpassed my expectations. And so I'm, like I say, really looking forward to kind of analyzing um, these films a little bit deeper level. Cause there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, I think a lot of room for some some stimulating conversation. So, yeah. So I think uh, it's pretty well said. We're all fans of this series, right? Yes. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about these first three. Now, this is another area where I kind of my chronology somehow got thrown out of whack because in my spreadsheet, I think I still even have um, the first film um, uh, subtitled uh, "Sword of Vengeance." as an April of 1972 release, but that's not the truth. That film was actually released on January 15th, 1972, part of a double feature of all things with uh, the Zadoichi's film. Um, it was the season premiere. Zadoichi at large was the uh, episode 91 that started here on season four. And so on January 15th of that year, um, I believe that the Zadoichi at large was the opening part of a double bill with Lone Wolf and Cub sort of vengeance being the second part of that double feature. So my dates got screwed up here. Otherwise, I would have covered this film right there at the beginning of season four. But I kind of like the way we're doing it now, uh, even though I think each of these films kind of has enough heft to it to merit its own standalone episodes. We're going to just kind of kind of give them the uh, compressed treatment here. Uh, but before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about the director, uh, Kenji um, Misumi? Misumi, yeah, Kenji Misumi, 
uh, he, he directed all three of these films and, uh, you know, he's a director. I've actually talked about some of his films. I think Zadoichi and the one-armed swordsman was, was, uh, directed by Masumi and, uh, he, you know, like I say, his hands are all over this Lone Wolf and Cub series. Uh, he is almost the definition of a journeyman Japanese director in some ways, and yet he really seemed to have a pretty impressive career. Um, he he also did one of the Hanzo the Razor films, which is probably the only other film that Criterion has the rights to that isn't on disc. And I, I personally speak, I don't expect to see Hanzo the Razor as a Criterion release on no. disc anytime soon. No, I've got, a, a I've, got a, I've got that on British DVD. Uh, but okay. I, that, that would not... That would be a very hard sell these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the cultural dynamics have shifted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we, we, will, we, will, we will talk about Hanzo the Razor later on, so let's kind of put that off to the side um but yeah do, do any of you guys have any thoughts or comments about kenji masumi there is a pretty good article that i've linked to in the show notes by the midnight eye website a, a kind of a, a tribute article kind of summing up his career but let me just open it to the floor do you all any of you all have any thoughts about masumi or any other experience watching his films the the zanoichi films that he directed are some of the best ones i think actually uh, yeah, like zanoichi right. the chess expert mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. He's clearly, uh, like, as you say, like one of these genre journeyman directors that is very reliable. Like, yeah, there's a great level of craftsmanship. I mean, that that's the other thing. Again, these are not just, you know, wild bonkers, you know, sword slashing mayhem. I mean, there is that, but but it, there really is. It is done with a, a refined sensibility. Uh, a lot of attention to period details, which I think is another really fascinating aspect of both the manga and these films. I, they they seem to make a very serious effort of grounding themselves in history. I mean, not to the point where um, they lose some of the you know the fun and and um, you know kind of heightened elements of creative fiction, but they they really want to get the feel of that period down uh visually as well as you know the architecture the manners the customs all of that and i think yeah, Masumi I mean, they was sort brought... of play with the history as well though don't they they sort of subvert the the, the um context they kind of the mm-hmm. the people that you would traditionally uh would be used as sort of uh, the heroic figures are actually the villains aren't they and, and yeah have, um uh, uh ito is is this sort of wandering sort of rebel isn't he who's sort of bucked the the uh the the traditional sort of uh, historical elements hasn't he and he's he's sort of rebelling against them which is what kind of makes it quite interesting Uh, well that's that's very much where i want to go because you know in bringing in this kind of realistic period setting and all the details that that masumi and the rest of the the crew uh kind of stuffed these movies with uh, I've definitely picked up a very strong uh, critique of of the of the samurai ethos and especially the the era of the Tokugawa shogunate and and uh, that's that's really what what's drawn me in. I've watched a lot of samurai movies over the years doing this podcast. You know, Trevor and I did a one of our inside the box episodes about the samurai trilogy from the you know, 1950s, a kind of an early earlyish role for Toshiro Mifune and this really epic color uh, vast adaptation of uh, 
the the story of Masashi Miyamoto. He's kind of like the prototypical samurai warrior, the master of swordsmanship, and, and a true historic figure who's almost been raised to mythological proportions just because his story's been told so many times in so many different ways. Uh, and to me, I, that, that series is a very uh, excellent sort of introduction, if you want to, do, to we'll call it that way, into the classical samurai genre picture. Uh, whereas films like Seven Samurai, which came out that same year as the, as the first Masashi Miyamoto film, uh, uh, Kobayashi's Harakiri and, and the Sloan Wolf and Cub series in particular seem to really be turning a lot of those conventions on their head and really drawing attention to the the violence and the brutality and the and the the flaws and the corruption of that era. And so, yeah, to me, that is what really I found the, some of the most compelling aspects of of watching and rewatching and thinking about these movies over the past few weeks. Um, so yeah, maybe let's just get into that. Uh, David, you kind of are already given us a little bit of a summary. Do you want to just kind of give us a synopsis? What's the basic setup of this series, uh, starting with our main characters? Who is this lone wolf and what's that cub doing there anyways? <laughs> well, he's, he essentially starts out in the story as, as, uh, one of the elite in this, uh, I guess in this period of, of Japanese history when the shogunite, uh, um, kind of ruled over the country uh, quite um, strictly and, and kept a really tight control over the different regions and things. Uh, and and uh, Ito Agami is, uh, is a shogunite's executioner. He's like their official um, executioner. And, and he holds quite an elite and high position within the, the hierarchy of society. But uh, at this point, I guess period, just from what I understand, and my apologies, uh, you know, for very crude uh, overview of uh, Japanese history, of which I'm no expert by any stretch. But the uh, the, the there was a lot of uh, infighting and things at the time amongst the elite in the society, uh, mainly because the the shogun who who was in charge at the time was uh, just sort of quite passive and didn't really uh, engage very much with uh, with the other lords or uh, in, in the other areas. And he just sort of hid away in his castles and didn't really involve himself too much in the, in the politics of the time. So what happened is you had a lot of these other uh, rulers of the sort of district uh, lords and things who were trying to, um, they were all vying for, for position and power. And as part of this, uh, uh, Ito uh, has is betrayed by by a uh, uh, someone with ambitions to take over his his spot. And uh, through this, uh, Ito's uh, wife is murdered, and he is basically framed for. Uh, you know, it's difficult to to look at it because basically they claim he he, he has uh, something in his shrine. That is offensive to the shogun, and on that basis, he's to be stripped of his power and and, and is uh, ordered to commit suicide. But then, of course, he rebels against this in his grief and his anger over the loss of his wife. He he then decides, I'm going to um, I'm going to rebel against this. I'm not going along with this. I'm going to get revenge, and that's where how he ends up becoming a wandering samurai. Uh, 
An assassin for hire, right. Exactly. Yeah, basically, yes. And he takes his son with him. Uh, and there's quite a, a, a moving bit at the beginning of the film, or at least in the, in, the, in the flashback, when they're sort of setting up how he came to this lifestyle, mm -hmm. uh, where his son, uh, even though he, his son's just an infant and obviously isn't, uh, doesn't have any capacity to make any sort of choice, um, he, he sets his sword and his ball uh, in the room and he says, you know, you pick and you decide if you pick the ball, I'm, I'm going to uh, send you to your mother. And uh, if you pick the sword, then you will join me in this in this new life. Uh, and as we joked about at the beginning, the, the demon way in hell, as he That's calls right. it. So so that is the kind of the setup of how he uh, he becomes this wandering uh, you know, Ronan, I guess you would call him mm -hmm. not a samurai because he's a sort of a considered a disgraced samurai. That's right. He he uh, he he serves no master now. Um, he he's charting his own path. But Richard, I think you were going to kind of get in there with a comment. So why don't you just follow up on what what David laid out for us? There? Oh, I was just going to clarify that uh, they put a. Uh... His shrine in that, that like his little temple is uh, meant as um, a shrine to the people he's executed, right? So right. all of the little totems in there are to people who are dead. So what the people conspiring against him do is put a totem that represents the shogun himself in there. Right. It's got the hollyhock crest, this yeah. little symbol that is like, even to look at it is almost like an act of impiety. I mean, and that's the, the, the strictness of this society that is ruled so rigidly by violence and there's you know there there's really critical scenes at the beginning of the of the first film that i really feel like cast a shadow over everything that happens afterwards even though i think there are some elements especially as we get deeper into the series where some of that historical groundedness gets lost here but i i um jason maybe i'll give you a chance to sort of comment anything that you wanted to sort of pick out of this this uh, basic setup that stands out to you that uh maybe draws you into the story. I mean, just the, especially when you're watching the, the first film, mm -hmm. the amount of gravitas that he is given yeah. by the other uh, warriors that are chasing after him. It's very clear that he is more than just a former Shogun. Um, and that yeah. he is somebody to be feared, absolutely. And yeah, yeah, he, he has this this almost supernatural power, but it's it's it it's sort of it feels to me like it's based in this kind of bushido philosophy. He, his mind is clear; he has no fear of death, mm -hmm. and and he's he's completely resolute in his course, wherever it may take. He, he cannot predict the future, but he is in a sense, invincible because he's vanquished all of his sort of worldly attachments. I mean, everything's been yeah. robbed from him, you know? And yeah, so to me, just kind of contemplating this this idea, um, you know, he's the shogun's executioner, but his execution, he's not just out there, you know, slaying criminals who've committed capital offenses. His, the, the very first execution we see, which is not, thankfully graphically <laughs> demonstrated yeah. is absolutely horrifying yeah. you see this cute little child um two three years old maybe i mean probably just you know uh 
barely coming into his own consciousness as a human being, but he's dressed in robes and he's, you know, being escorted into this chamber with all of these servants, all of these vassals who are, you know, bending over, muffling sobs, crying protest. You recognize that this boy is being brought into an execution chamber Mm -hmm. and it's because something has happened within this clan that has drawn the shogun's ire. He's basically decided that this estate needs to be dissolved. Maybe it wasn't the shogun himself. Maybe it was one of those kind of handlers, somebody close to the the top of the pyramid, so to speak. Uh, but this this clan now has to be dissolved because they st- somehow got out of line. And uh, the the boy is told, point the fan at your stomach. Of course, they're not going to ask a child to actually commit harakiri with the actual cut. But the, the executioner's role is to serve as the second who will chop off the head mm-hmm. and minimize the suffering. And so as I was just thinking about it, it's like, that is a very brutal form of government. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about the Taliban, we could talk about North Korea, Myanmar, whatever regime of, of our own era. Uh, those guys have nothing on this. This this is a very powerfully um well, I don't know. It's 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 a very brutal, very severe, and, and the, the word you use, Jason, gravitas. I think that's the other thing. The solemnity of it all yeah. uh, is 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 really overwhelming, and I think depicted with with real visceral power here. That this was a society that was really racked with paranoia and fear. Yeah, yeah go ahead. The um, just that very first scene in the film really yeah. kind of sets up the whole series and exactly, just shows yeah. about the attitude. Uh, the the the, the, the uh, towards life really and mm-hmm. that all these people whether they be even little children or the the, the various vassals and and uh, and servants that their lives are have no value beyond their service to their to to the you know more senior people right and the fact that that you know it, throughout the series you see various uh, instances where you know uh, people order the, the the deaths of their own children and their own um, closest advisors and their own men and, and families and things and just very uh, easily and uh, bluntly will just sacrifice lives and i think that that first opening scene just really shows that uh, it kind of sets up that whole vibe that goes through yeah. the entire series yeah, well, I, be, go ahead. Well, it also uh, brings in the the initial idea of the legacy, you know, by the fastest way to destroy a minor shogunite is just to kill the son. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, the, the lineage is disrupted now. Exactly. If you don't have the bloodline, yeah. then all is lost. And and all the vassals are basically thrown out into the wilderness as well because they are there to serve their lord. And their life is defined by that role, that, that yeah. that's their purpose, that's their function. And if you take the Lord out of the picture, there's nothing left for them other than just wandering the remainder of their days. Mm-hmm. And and there's also some little voiceover talking about the different groups. There's the ninja who serve sort of as spies and, and uh, kind of enforcers. There's another group and then there's the executioner. So you have this triangulation going where everybody's so paranoid you can never really 
form a conspiracy against the shogun or against any of the higher ups because you don't know if the person you're talking to is going to be reporting back and and you know so everybody's gripped in this paralysis of fear and terror and to me it feels and again i i appreciated sort of the subtlety and i i don't think i'm reading a whole lot into it but it's it's never blatantly stated but when when uh ogami ito sort of has his break when he recognizes what's been taken from him under the pretenses that, you know, uh, some perceived act of impiety towards the Shogun has, has set him up to be basically betrayed. Um, it's like, he's, he's going to serve the rest of his life functioning as sort of a, an angel of death over this whole, you know, corrupt power structure. Mm -hmm. And I guess what, what really got to me is I'm thinking how much wonderful cultural, beauty also came out of japan at this very time you know the this whole period is where we get uh, the kabuki theater and no and and so much poetry and art and there's there's all these wonderful kind of blossoming of japanese culture the, the classical japanese period and yet the governance of that country um and i don't i don't think that this this the these stories exaggerated it you know because i've seen so many samurai films that you know have that same kind of code like if you are told by your superior that you've crossed the line and now it's time to commit seppuku that's what you do and and you do it manfully and you do it you know because this is your time and this is your destiny this is your fate and it's just you know i'm just i've been really just spending a lot of time just thinking about what would it be like actually living in a society uh, governed by those types of rules and expectations and so to me that's that's kind of the background that just you know created so much fascination as i'm recognizing here's what lone wolf and cub are are doing because they I don't, I don't, what do you guys think about this you know in zadoichi the bad guys are mostly just kind of you know, corrupt, greedy slobs, you know, uh, gangsters and, and exploiters of, of the simple peasant folk and all of that. In this film, there's something kind of more sinister going on. I mean, it's like, if you're, if you're part of the power structure, you are part of this vicious cycle. If, uh, and if you're just a peasant, well, you're certainly more expendable, but you're not really in the crosshairs of, of, power and domination in the same way it's like this incredibly high stakes game of of who's got access to power who's got the privilege and that's what set that's what set ogami ito up to be you know betrayed is because this rival clan the yagyus wanted to have one of their sons serve in that role as executioner and there was actually that that kind of pivotal battle where uh the that rival actually had the upper hand for a moment over ogami um except for the fact that his the tip of his sword pointed towards the shogun in the heat of battle and that's what 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 got ogami the job is that he positioned his body in front of the sword to protect the shogun and the shogun said it's not about the swordsmanship it's about who's going to put their life on the line uh at this breach of protocol it's not like the guy was actually going after the shogun but the sword pointed in his direction and that's too much you know that's unforgivable uh, offense against the dignity and honor of, of the supreme lord so i mean i don't so just to me that the, the kind of symbolism and kind of the the the, the heaviness behind this type of rigid code um has 
was really kind of a, a launching pad for me. I've been reading about Bushido and reading different anthologies of writings from this period and just really trying to sink my, myself into this uh, samurai ethos. And, and these films have just really awakened this kind of curiosity in me. I'm just wondering if you guys have any thoughts along that line or just that, that whole sort of subtext that runs through these films. It's really interesting to think of this as an extension of the Zatoichi series because mm-hmm. it's important to remember that in the Zatoichi series, Zatoichi is not a samurai. Right. Right. He's a yakuza. He's a yeah. gangster. Right. Yet right. he bests people all the time who are samurai. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain playful rebellion in the Zatoichi series that I think here becomes much stronger rebellion, almost like the movie Harakiri, where mm-hmm. where the, it's not just that someone who isn't following Bushido you know, beats people who are, it's that somebody like, you know, has deliberately thrown away the Bushido code. Hence the, yeah. you know, the, the demon path, right. because he's what's revealed. And I think it's, it's sort of there in that opening scene where they, you know, they're executing the child, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That there's some great lies underlying this code. <laughs> exactly. That's the, the that's mm-hmm. the, 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 the corruption that, that just the evil of, of these principles that are being laid out. Uh, there's a certain order and there's a certain, certainly that there's a strength and a power to it, but it's really anti-human when it gets down to it. Yeah. And based and you know, Ito's, disgrace is based on an outright lie yes and hence is i'm not following this anymore like you simply are accusing me of something i haven't done so i throw the whole code away yeah because because the system will not bail him out there there's nobody he can turn to who can say hey they done him wrong you know there's there's no court of appeal there's there's no justice and and i think he's out to basically take that system down i don't know maybe that's not exactly where the whole manga series goes but that's that's really what i was getting so there's a very subversive element here well when you when you mentioned uh, about kenji misumi the the director uh, apparently there is a, a real sort of countercultural sort of subtext to a lot of his films I mean, as we were talking about before we started recording i think unfortunately a lot of his films because uh, apparently he was quite a prolific director. He made loads and loads of sort of Chambara films, of sort of historical films. I think there's films. 51 films that have him listed yeah. as director on Letterboxd anyways. Yeah, yeah, so he was quite prolific. But unfortunately, many of those films, for whatever reason, are, are have not made their way to sort of English-friendly home video releases and mm-hmm. things like that. So it's very difficult to, to see much of his work outside of Zatoichi and the the um the hanzo and and um, these films that we're talking about here today but apparently he he did have quite a, a you know sort of a, a kind of a socialist world view and that that really um uh, permeated his work uh and i think a lot of not just japanese films but obviously in this period in the sort of late 60s 70s when you talk about sort of uh, exploitation films and and uh, films of this period there is much more of a sort of more cynical and critical view of of society and the structures of society and things that run you know run through a lot of films of this of this period um i think that the difference with the japanese ones though that's quite interesting because obviously in europe and america a lot of the 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 films that we associate with sort of exploitation and uh, were, were tended to 
tended to be made outside of the studio systems and they were made sort of cheaply by sort of first-time directors or people on limited budgets and they were just distributed in sort of regional cinemas and or sort of on the grindhouse circuit and drive-ins and things like that but in japan a lot of these films are obviously made by major studios that were that uh, had kind of were, were trying to compete with television uh, and you see a lot of the that that kind of um, more critical sort of rebellious streak that runs through a lot of the films like you can see it in some other directors like sort of ishii and fukasaku and uh, those kind of those films that that cast a more critical view of society of, of japanese society mm-hmm. i think that's part of the thing what makes a lot of these films so interesting i think there's something to also be said about almost the propaganda uh, feel to some of these films if you consider wh- when they're being made uh, we still have part of the american occupation near the end uh, near the end of that and they're trying to democratize japan away from the old ways so if you really highlight how bad it was for the 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 little guy mm-hmm. it's a lot easier for you to see the the value in an american de- uh, democratic system mm-hmm. yeah moving away from authoritarianism yeah. and and absolute iron-fisted rule so yeah and it does feel like that style of of uh, leadership uh, of social control uh, of exercise of power is definitely getting dragged <laughs> pretty hard here. So, uh, so to me, yeah, this is not just you know, like I say, just you know, wild action. I mean, and but there's plenty of that, and maybe we can start turning our focus towards some of the, you know, the more um, you know, uh, surface level delights. But I, I, I do feel like that's that's what gives these movies just that extra something beyond just cool you know, gory splatter and, and the realization of these, of these you know, furious massacres uh, and, and, and the, you know, the athleticism that it takes to pull these, these types of stunts off realistically on the screen. So. And it's worth talking to about the, the, just the quality of the filmmaking. You right. mentioned that before, because mm-hmm. like I was saying, because they're, they, they were, these were bigger studio pitches are made by people like, like uh, Lucimi who, who've been working in, films that you know the crews the technician the creative people they all were highly experienced uh, working for years and you can really see the in the storytelling and in the the, the, the just the the way that they convey so many ideas and exp- and express so much just in in just a few you know a few shots and in, in, in just in the way that the, the shots are composed and the way that they uh, juxtapose images uh, between the characters and the way that they, you know, um, just use the landscape and the clouds in the sky and all those things. Like it's it's such uh, such an amazing level of, of um, filmmaking, just skill um, that's in, that that is on display in these films. Uh, that that it just really rises it above just you know just all the the gore and the you know the sort of gratuitous bare breasts and all those things mm-hmm. um yeah, it yeah. kind of just takes it up to that next level doesn't it 
yeah absolutely i think there's a there's a lot of aesthetic quality but like i say there's a lot of there's a lot of kicks there's a lot of a lot of wild fun in all of this as well now we've talked a little bit about the kind of some comparisons with the zadoichi series and of course they have some very strong connections uh the the actor i'm going to give a shot at his name tomisabaru wakayama is the younger brother of shintaro katsu uh, I think th- these might be stage names here. I think, I think it's the other way around. I think he's the older brother, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. Shintaro Katsu is the younger brother, right? You're right. So, um, but yeah, so he he uh, auditioned. He really wanted this role. Uh, Katsu Productions had already optioned the rights, and and but the, the Shintaro was was already busy with uh, the Zadoichi series, so he wasn't going to take it on himself, even though he did take on the Hanzo the Razor character, interestingly enough. But anyways, so you'll see a, a physical uh, similarities between Wakayama and Katsu as they you know, play their respective roles. Uh, he's a he's a pretty beefy, stout guy, uh, but but incredibly nimble. I mean, you know, he he's there might be a, might, might have been a few places where uh, they had some stunt doubles in there, but I think he was very much up and in the mix of all of it. Uh, the sword fighting, some of the, the aerial scenes where he's, you know, doing midair somersaults and leaps and whether those swords are sharp or not, there's some pretty crazy stuff going on there. And you just got to give props to this big dude who got out there and, and made it happen. You know, uh, what do y'all think of just about, about him as an actor and, and how he brought this character to life? What I'd say, he's apparently very well trained. Like, yeah, in yeah. like four or five different martial arts disciplines. Um, I I, I kind of love his stillness too. He's sort of yeah. A, yeah. He's yeah. a he's a big he's sort of sleepy eyed calm that sort of explodes into. Yeah, that's that's the that 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 whole Zen detachment thing that where you know he's just he's in the moment. You know, when he rests, he's fully at rest. When it's time for action, he is a hundred percent on. You know, it's just um, obviously. You know, this is this is filmmaking. There's going to be some sleight of hand. There's performance aspects to all this, but again, the the character is just so vividly portrayed of um, yeah, with with those nuances. I mean, he's got all the skills, all the warrior training, all of the knowledge of all of those disciplines, and yet he he is both he transcends it as well as you know uses those skills to to his own advantage even though he's you know departed the the bushido code and is on his own you know demon path which again i think in the west we may think of it as like dark or satanic as some kind of willfully you know gloating evil i don't i don't think the the, the realm of demons functions the same in Japanese culture, as it might in sort of the, the Christianized West, where you know that's just the, the the full embrace of evil and corruption and and exploitation and all kinds of sinister, uh, greedy perhaps, or, or projecting your ego into this kind of monstrous you know outsized form. It's it's just he's he's recognizing sort of the the vanity, the futility. Uh, the the misguidedness of of the earthly realm that he was very much a part of that he had dedicated his whole life to and had been you know privileged by in some some respects uh, he's turning his back and rejecting all of that and so again there's this very philosophical thing happening there where he's recognized the the nihilism at the core of this of this 
culture and this society. Uh, not that everybody is completely, you know, depraved and good for nothing, but but there's something fundamentally wrong with the 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 top levels of authority. And he's out there to sort of serve as a force of vengeance, as the title of the first film, "Sword of Vengeance," implies. There's a recurring there's a recurring theme in the series that uh-huh. people lose to him because they refuse to do things that would be considered dishonorable. And I think it has a lot to do with that, that he like mm. not dishonorable in the ethical sense, but in the, this is how fights are done. Right. They're trapped by their conventions, uh, even as skilled as they are, you know, I mean, uh, let's, let's get into some of the, uh, the key moments, especially as the rivalry with the Yagyu clan develops. Um, there's that kind of crazy old man who's always, you know, you know, gritting his teeth and, and, yelling at his sons at, at their ineptitude um one of the one of the the epic battles is is the uh i think the early duel after uh, after uh, otami uh, is he he goes in and, and he 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 is told to commit harakiri in this elaborate temple setting uh with his son and and he's expected to follow orders you know this is the end of your journey. Do the honorable thing, and you will be out of your pain and misery. Uh, of course, he inverts all of that. He he slaughters the the uh, the leaders who supposedly you know are his superior. Uh, but then when he um, is is cornered and it looks like he is completely surrounded here, uh, he sh- he wields the holly hot crest. He shows that under his white robes, he's got the holly hot crest. And again, the, the code is such that you cannot even attack a man who has that crest on him. Whatever he's done, you can't, you can't uh, slash your sword because if you cut that crest, you've committed the unforgivable sin, right? And so this is another example of how he's using the conventions and the authority lines of this system to, to, first of all, save himself, uh, but he also sets it up as a duel, which uh, is is kind of the first great stunt where, you know, the Yagyu is, is gloating over the fact that his son has his back to the setting sun and and it's it's uh, ogami ito who has to run into the sun and and in the in the in that original samurai series that i talked about the musashi miyamoto's who has the sun behind them uh is very critical in a few scenes there as well but the inversion where where ogami ducks his head and there's his son on his back a little papoose back there with a mirror on his forehead <laughs> bouncing the sun and of course the this wonderful clean beheading takes place place and it's just it's so savage but so delicious and so hilarious at the same time <laughs> what do y'all think about that particular stunt there yeah there's lots of little sort of uh, yeah wonderful the... little uh, sort of moments <laughs> like that where um the in each film where where uh, he plays these little tricks to just turn the tables and it's it's quite brilliant mm-hmm. i think it's worth uh, uh mentioning those it's mainly just in the first three films that we're talking about now. They seem to dispense with it later on in the series. But um, I love those those cutaway shots always of of Dagoro, the little boy, when whenever his father dispatches some of the villains in in quite uh, you know slicing off arms and limbs, and then they always cut away to a shot of of the of the son just looking kind of quizzically. At all the carnage, and I think yeah. those shots are really quite, um, quite brilliant. It makes me think of the 
I think it's in the criterion in the booklet that comes with the set that someone uh, alludes to the fact that that uh, lone wolf and cub makes a really great sort of metaphor for sort of parenthood. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. quite brilliant because you just I, and I thought that's good. that idea of the son just watching on silently and just observing all these things and taking them in. And I know as a father, you notice that sometimes too. Like they they kind of are watching you when you're at your at your worst and at your best. They're always just kind of watching you and observing and, and taking it all in. And you know that that's kind of influencing them. And so that's why I quite like those those little cutaway shots of, of the boy just kind of watching uh, all these things happening, but, you know, very silently just observing with that quizzical look on his face. And I think it's quite, quite brilliant. That, that kid is magnificent, too. He really yeah. is. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's no information about the, the, the little boy who plays him. I, I couldn't find any information online or any anywhere. Mm-hmm. And even in the book, I've, I've got this book that, that we talked about offline um, from Arrow Books. They have a book all about the series. And, and um, there's absolutely no information about that, that young actor who played that boy at all. Yeah, I mean, because you'd think that this kid could have had some kind of future. I mean, even even if he just wanted to, you know, coast on his reputation, because he really does accomplish some very remarkable things. Where he had to have been only three or four years. I mean, he's three years old as far as the story is concerned. He might have been a little bit older than that as a performer, but yeah, that's another reason that maybe these films were were made so quickly and kind of clustered together so that the kid didn't <laughs> kind of outgrow his role. Um, but his expressions, uh, however he was directed, uh, he just has that kind of knowing look. In fact, in, in the manga, they really make a big deal out of, out of his eyes. And I think there's some references to that in the films, uh, the eyes of that have seen death that have kind of looked into the void. Uh, there's some you know, Japanese word for that. Uh, that is, you know, again, very evocative and, and kind of, of spooky, um, you know, when when he's confronted by an adult, you know, samurai warrior, they recognize that this this child has experienced and seen things that maybe shouldn't have been witnessed at such a young age. But you're right, David, that there's a, there is this kind of metaphor for parenthood and just this reminder that, you know, the children of, of our world are being shaped by the, the, the mistakes and the foolishness and the greed and the corruption that all too often their, their parents uh, put on display before them. But that, that's also just another really fascinating aspect of this story. Uh, we don't just have this kind of, you know, uber samurai swordsman action hero you've got the the handicap if you will of of this little child which kind of reminds me of one of the uh, earliest zadoichi films in fact i think the first one i actually ever blogged about was fight zadoichi fight which is the, the sort of central concept there is that zadoichi finds a, an abandoned baby and has to take this child around with him and so you you literally see Zadoichi's sword fighting while he's holding a baby in one arm and the sword in the other and then there's the comic bits about changing diapers and getting peed on and stuff like that which they they don't really go to here in this series but that whole dynamic of a man who's raising a son uh, and has to deal with the fact that there's this vulnerable little child um, you know that is definitely you know a feature that is that is uh, very essential to to the this, the whole dynamics of this series. 
to loop back around. That's one of Kenji Masumi's Zatoichi films. Exactly. Yeah, and that's and that's where I wanted to kind of go with that. Is that you know this this whole idea of of a a, a hero who's got this very significant responsibility that could be seen as a distraction, and yet you know uh, the cub uh, Daigoro is is his actual name. Uh, he's in on some of the killing as well. <laughs> he he knows which buttons to push in his in his baby cart. <laughs> to get well, the, yeah, go ahead. Much like the baby cart being just chock full of weapons, like a Bond car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Diagoro right. is one of them. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, got few. I was just flipping through the well while we're talking the the first issue of the comic, and he gets out of his binds. You know, he's, he's captured, he gets out of his binds because uh, Diagoro has to pee and he cannot do anything until after he pees and the, the baby throws a fit. And so they let him out of his, his shackles to take his child to pee. <laughs> right. And then he slaughters them. <laughs> so it's just like one of the, the daggers in the cart that he could yeah. use. Yeah. And he's a cute little kid too. So you got mm-hmm. that whole little awe. Nice little boy. <laughs> uh, he's a, he's a bit of a freshie too, you know. There's a few scenes where he uh, kind of clasps <laughs> himself onto the uh, the ample bosom of a woman or two. <laughs> so well, it's like oh, he's a hungry kid. What, what can you say? He's a movie star. I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> uh so well well maybe we can wrap up our coverage of the first film i mean it's a pretty great origin story but i think that i like the flashback structure rather than just kind of telling us all in sequence because yeah i mean we we see uh the very first scene we've already talked about and then the next scene you see after that is he's already on the road as an assassin for hire uh he's got a big banner that that he kind of you know, puts out there as a little kind of a rolling billboard. Uh, but then throughout the film, you know, the, you know, the story you told David of the sword and the ball, uh, those memories are kind of organically generated when he sees children bouncing a ball uh, on the road. Uh, he sees the reflection of the sun in this little kind of mud puddle, which brings back to mind the the beheading scene that I talked about earlier. So there's this, there's some really elegant storytelling maneuvers that go on here and, and give, a, give us the basic setup that will carry us through the next five films of who these characters are, how they you know got into this predicament and and what propels them along on this demon path that they're that they're pursuing. Uh, there's another element that's kind of introduced about uh, you know halfway through the film, maybe towards the end. There's there it seems like there's always like one really strong female character, at least in these first three mm-hmm. films, that is kind of um, both impressive and and uh, strong in her own way. A uh, little bit of an obviously an erotic appeal and and uh, a, a would be love interest because you know these women all sort of fall for this guy, but he, in his very stoic way, is like, "Leave me alone, ladies. I've got my own path to follow. You really don't want to go where I'm going." So th- there's that I guess what you might call the sort of sex appeal angle of it as well. So uh, in this film, in the first one, he basically is you know this disarms himself because he's going into this village there's some hot springs there he's got a he's got an assassination to carry out uh but the people that he's or the person he's there to take out has not arrived so he's basically holed up with a bunch of other people who've been taken hostage by this this you know group of 
thugs and bad guys. Um, and, you know, in the process, there's a, a prostitute there who they're going to slaughter, except they think, well, maybe she should do, put a little show on for us. Uh, you know, so they, there's a, a sex act thing simulated there, and, and Otami will willingly goes along with this, even though, again, as a samurai, uh, it would have been beneath his station to you know, engage in this type of activity, but he does it as an act of mercy towards this woman. And of course, you know, there, it is played up for a slightly exploitative effect there. It, it's pretty chaste, especially compared to maybe a similar scene that I thought of when I watched the, from Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song there. But, you know, uh, same, same kind of thing going on there. People are watching somebody else have sex for amusement. And, uh, you know, this here was, you know, kind of, par for the course for that early 70s kind of softcore type of moment um but yeah i mean what what did y'all think about the story and and basically how how it establishes us us to to move on and follow these characters into further adventures it's it's very much like we need an episode from the manga now to fill in the second half of the movie (laughs) Mm. but (laughs) okay but i think it's a very good one i i especially appreciate when the leader of those thugs suddenly realizes who a Tommy is. Yes. Yeah. Right. Somebody says the word executioner and all the, yeah. all the dots align there. Yeah. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And the, the knife throwing guy. Yeah. He appears in three of the other films and he looks like Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting comparison, but <laughs> I find it totally distracting, especially in Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. before I say anything, I just want to fact, fact check myself this, while this film was several years after the occupation, which I mentioned a little while ago, mm-hmm. the style of film where you try and knock down, um, the past, that's all. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, we still have a base over in Okinawa to this yeah. day, you know, so it's, it's not completely done. Yeah. Um, however, uh, to, I don't really see much in this film that would get butts in for a sequel aside from the hyper violence. Sure. Uh, Yeah. And let's just talk about that. Yeah. Uh Because before this, you're only going to see stuff like this in like a 42nd street, like to this level. Right. Real grindy Uh, house stuff. yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my mind that that's sort of like, aortic spray that would empty a body in two or three seconds, let alone, you know, 15 seconds is a trademark of Japanese cinema. It's may not be yeah. true, but that's, what's in my head. I think it is. Well, yeah. I think, I think Sanjuro uh, Kurosawa's follow up to Yojimbo was kind of, at least on the broader culture, uh, commercial level was kind mm-hmm. of the first big introduction to that kind of exploding blood technique. Yeah. Um, and of course, that was in black and white. But even even as I've been uh, talking about Zatoichi films over the past few seasons of this podcast, you definitely see that they're following a trend. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's there's a greater freedom and even a desire to to sort of see more of this you know graphic, gruesome dismemberment. Uh, 
visually portrayed, not just alluded to or described. And then, and, you know, let's face it, by this point in, in Japanese cinema, we've seen literally thousands of people go down with one mm-hmm. big slashing blow of the sword. Uh, so what are, what are you going to show me that I haven't already seen before? <laughs> and so here you, you see that, you know, and, and some of it's, it's just wickedly hilarious you know just the 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 absurdity of it uh but also pretty jarring and and kind of nerve-wracking uh at the same time so very much i mean we've we talked about the sexuality we've talked about the the gore the blood splatters the philosophy i mean it's it's really just quite a quite a rich package here so to me it felt like you know we definitely need to have more of these films the, the setup of film number one uh, and the, the ongoing popularity of the manga basically screams, this is a franchise. This this mm-hmm. is going to keep going here. This isn't a one-and-done type of uh, samurai saga. Yeah, it. I think this would work out. Today, this would work better as a series, um, like an HBO Max, if you really want to get violent. Yeah. Um, or an AMC, if you kind of want to keep it tamed a little bit. But you can still go pretty dang on violent there. Well, you say that, but I've I've read some somewhere in my sort of research this week that apparently they are develop like uh, developing a new version, like a, it's, a contemporary version. Yeah. I don't know if it's in Japan or or elsewhere, but um, it's in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's uh, definitely some some movement out there to to kind of revive the franchise. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just uh, Justin. This would have I'm just on the Wikipedia page. Justin Lin, uh, back in. 2012 i think he's the one that did the fast and the furious well re- made them better it was originally attached so it's definitely it would definitely be a u.s production i know i mean i mean i i wouldn't have that much interest in that i i, I suppose i would have a little bit but i i love these films so much that i can't mm-hmm. uh you know i can't imagine <laughs> anything being quite so wonderful as these the, these films that we're talking about here um, you know, I'd be afraid that they would just they would just c- CGI it so much. You know, yeah. I mean, the, to me, the athleticism of of the of the guy and 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 all really the whole the whole thing. I mean, the fact is, yeah, we can tell. Obviously, some of these are props and and these are you know manual effects and all. And the period detail, the fact that they're they're accessing Japanese landscapes that are probably pretty well developed by this point. I mean, the the outdoor nature scenes some of those location shots that's really hard to capture and i think the, with the modern ethos of, of filmmaking they wouldn't bother they they would just you know simulate a lot of that stuff they and, cgi and I, the blood yeah 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 and and i, I think i think I you'd, you'd lose something there well, well i don't know the, yeah. the blood is one of the things that really is hard to handle because it gets all over everything if you want to shoot a scene again well, you've got I mean, blood all over everything, so that's why they CGI blood spurts, bullets, I, and everything nowadays. I 100% agree with you, but I think the tolerance level for CGI blood is start is really falling, uh, just because of how fake it looks. That I would see them doing as much practically as possible. Obviously, not all of it's practical, but I don't even see. I could totally see them doing the, uh, they shooting in Japan or somewhere in Asia at the very least. Um, and I can see them doing a lot of wire work. 
To yeah, I, I could see some of that. There, yeah, there could be some pretty cool stunt stuff, you know, as far as some of the, the physical you know, acrobatics and whatnot. I just, I wonder, are there actors uh, of like Makayama's uh, caliber who have all of the training? And, and I mean, that, that there's, yes. there's, there's, there's those scenes, you know, the, like, they do it in every film multiple times, but every time he does it, I'm still just amazed that when he puts his sword away, Oh yeah, that that little um, you know that perfect sort of motion of of he just sort of flicks the sword up and then just she's it, and it's and every time they show him do it, I just kind of go, wow, that is so cool. Even though like they've he's done it like twenty five times through the course. Yeah, I'd have just pierced my appendix or something. (laughs) 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 Slice my fingers off every time. Uh, he does so many amazing things like like um i think richard mentioned he, he he has sort of him and his brother both came from sort of a kabuki theater background yeah and they all were they were very highly trained in this physical uh form of theater and martial arts and things and and you can really see that and apparently uh, the director quite often chose to to shoot long shots just to, to show his sword technique and his amazing sort of skill. Um, and uh, yeah, I, don't, I, I just would imagine that that would just be irreplaceable because he, he is really quite amazing to watch. Because you mentioned he's quite a stocky guy. He's quite sort of, you know, he doesn't physically, when you look at him, you wouldn't necessarily sort of expect him to be very athletic. Right. But, but then he's quite, uh, you know, just absolutely does some amazing things throughout the films. It's, it's quite, quite, quite cool, really. Yeah. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that they have somebody well, of his caliber that'd be able to do something. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I mean, if you're reading the comics, um, he's quite a bit more thick. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> in the comics, I mean, the guy's totally buffed, you know, and and so. he he looks like somebody more like in his you know early mid twenties, which would make sense to having a child that young. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, he, he seems like he's up there in years a little bit. There, yeah. I mean, not elderly by any means. Let's see, he was born in twenty nine, so yeah, here he is. You know, he's pushing his you know mid thirties there by the time these films came out. So. Apparently, he was middle aged when he um... yeah. Uh, when he made these films, he was like in his forties. Oh yeah, forties. Uh, right, right. It's interesting to know that he he mainly in his career he played mainly sort of gangsters and villains and things. Yeah, he but, seems uh, like a heavy right, an enforcer. Yeah, right? and, but he apparently he he uh, acted in two hundred and forty six films. <laughs> It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, two hundred and forty seven because apparently uh, posthumously they. CGI'd him into something, oh, and so boy. technically there's a 247th screen credit that he got, but that one was posthumous. He's uh, in like he's in two North American films, and I think it's really funny. He's in Ridley Scott's Black Rain. Sure, that makes sense. And the Bad News Bears go to Japan. Uh, see now I want to see those films again just because I want to yeah, see him in it. Definitely, I, no, that would. I be... don't know how big his part is in those films, but I would. I just love to 
He's the coach of the Japanese team in the in the bad news. Oh, is it? Oh, excellent. Yeah. I, oh, I haven't seen the bad news Bears films in years. I gotta I gotta look those up. You, well, what's the set up all for? So. <laughs> <laughs> kind of off topic, the bad news bears, Walter Matthau, and all that, but um, but anyway. Well, let's take some time to talk about uh, film number two, uh, Baby Cart at the River Sticks. Here, this is the one that really makes up the bulk of Shogun Assassin. So, yeah, uh, yeah uh, Jason or Richard, either one of you guys want to kind of give us a little synopsis of the film and, and kind of where it takes us. Go ahead, Richard. Sure, I, I, I'll start by saying this is my favorite of the series. Uh-huh. Yes, uh-huh. I, I really, I really like this one. Um, it's it's a tiny yeah, I think bit. You ever- could make the argument that it's probably probably the best one although i don't like saying that but but it probably you could make that argument can you it's a tiny bit like like a lot of them it's a tiny bit episodic and that there's kind of two parts of it Mm -hmm. um uh, on on the one hand the villainous yagyu clan get this group of um, female sword women yes to uh, they sort of put the hit on ito uh, with, as the wonderful sequence with them uh, demonstrating their uh, yeah. skill by asking the ninja leader who's come to hire them to give us your best man and let yeah. him leave the room. <laughs> let him leave the room, and he gets yeah. cut into tiny little pieces. <laughs> yep. But sort of the first half of the film is mostly taken up with these 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 sword women taking on Ido one by one. Yeah, all these encounters after after they've basically embarked on their mission to take him out, it's just bang, bang, bang. I mean, I don't really want to call them set pieces because they, they happen so rapidly, but they're each really brilliantly realized. Yes, yeah. And it culminates with the, after most of the women have been eliminated by Ito, the woman, the woman who leads them and the guy, the samurai, the ninja guy that hired her kidnapping Dagairo and holding him hostage to try to get Ido and that doesn't work out. Yeah, hanging him by a rope over a very deep well, you know. It's yes. just like pretty pretty wild stuff, pretty sadistic, you know. Um and and again another sort of use of of the of the child as a as a real kind of linchpin in in the danger and the menace that uh, Okami Ito has to find his way through and i learned nothing (laughs) well they're in the process (laughs) but but, you know and that that woman sayaka is her name her character name in the film i I think she is kind of like the prototype of the the strong female rival as well very very i I mean just her demeanor and and (laughs) that that whole (laughs) indignant wicked laugh you know when 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 uh, she feels somebody's trifling with her and the way her eye twitches when there's an implication that perhaps the women aren't quite up to this job and i mean it's just you know again that that gravitas that dignity that that uh you know that high indignation that she shows uh as well as the this the 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 pure lethality and and let's face it i mean the sexiness of these female warriors you know pulling the daggers out of their kimonos i mean i think that's gonna kind of you know sort of be a nice segue into the lady snowblood and that whole tradition of of uh 
killer women, uh, you know, martial artists. Uh, there was a little bit of that in the Touch of Zen, which I, I reviewed uh, on the podcast in the previous season there. But yeah, this these are just, again, all the elements are there to just leave a very strong, sharp impression of, uh, you know, danger that you really don't want to mess with. But uh, uh, on the safe side as an outside observer, it's so compelling to watch. Yeah, and there'll be there'll be characters just like her, like in the next two films. Yeah, she kind of sets up that dynamic in the films of the the strong female character that's sort of going to be Ido's echo in in a, for a large section of the film. Mm-hmm. It's also the first time I think someone uses Daigoro, or he uses Daigoro in a way where people think they have him, but he risks Daigoro's life in a pretty amazing way to defeat them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they have they've 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 committed to their path, and again, even though the the child doesn't have the training and the same discipline that his father does, he has that same sort of inner resolve that that you know yielding to fate and that lack of fear that just says, "I will be I will be in the moment, and we will we will meet our destiny you know, bravely without blinking." There's something I noticed. This morning, actually, because I rewatched Shogun Assassin this morning, yeah. and the same uh-huh. scene as in that. that uh, <laughs> yeah. So they, they're threatening to drop Degaro down the well, and they drop him. Mm-hmm. And Ito saves him at the last minute by stepping on the rope. Right. And I kind of realized this morning, Degaro lets him know how much time he has by dropping his sandal down the well yeah. earlier exactly. in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how many seconds before the splash, right? Yeah, I hadn't really processed that the first time I watched it, or the second right. time, but the third time I'm like, oh, Decoros. Yeah, there's a there's this. a purpose to that little yeah. dropping his sandal, you know. Yeah, it's it's quite um, interesting the female character too, the the head assassin that she seems to, um, by the end of the film, uh, she kind of relents a little bit, doesn't she? And, and, yeah. and for some, Decoro is brought out. This sort of latent maternal instinct in her. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite quite interesting because throughout the film she's quite arrogant uh, and and quite sort of sure of her abilities, and and as the film progresses, that gets sort of uh, taken away from her, and these other things uh, begin to to emerge. Um, once once she's had all these these trappings of her upbringing and her uh, station and things are all stripped away then then she suddenly has a, this um, kind of revelation of her own so there's quite a, quite a character arc for her as well yeah through the film. yeah yeah and as and they as they explicitly say in the child's voiceover in shogun assassin ito could have just taken her out but he lets her live you know even though she's clearly presented a lot of danger to him he walks away and, and allows her to survive and then they are reunited perhaps somewhat stretching plausibility a bit but uh, they happen to be on the ship when it catches on fire which kind of sets up another scene where like you say david those maternal instincts kind of get brought out uh, as they are you know huddled together <laughs> uh in 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 the cold and she thinks she's about to get raped and he's about to get his revenge on her but no he's just like let's just share body warmth here and so it's a it's kind of actually what looks like it could have been a very you know uh intense scene turns into something very tender and 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 kind of compassionate even which is not exactly 
you know, the adjectives that I, I would typically use to describe um, Ito's character. But but he does have a certain sense of justice and and uh, concern for the underdog. He doesn't several... kill people when he doesn't have to. Right, right, exactly. I Even think he, though... I think he lets her go in that early scene because she's kind of overwhelmed by what just happened and clearly not a threat anymore, at least in the, for the moment. So why kill her? <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's, that's very, very wise. Yeah, but yeah, so he, even though he's, he's on this demon path and even though he's committed to violence and will be violent whenever it's necessary, he does have a sense of where to draw that line. Um, then you get the three brothers with the, the Ben yeah. Rai or whatever, uh, another really fantastic, um, showcase there these are men who have certain training with particular weapons a metal claw a a mace uh, with kind of spikes sticking out of it and then these kind of armored gloves and they are you know great ultimately lethal supervillain types um you know they even have a little bit of a kind of acrobatics thing going on when they're you know doing their little uh, leap off the ship uh you know, on fire. It's just really spectacular visuals there, um, and then and then the big desert showdown as well. Just just fantastic scenes. Um, yeah, I, I think they really do kind of epitomize uh, the action sequences uh, for this series. Yeah, I think this film is sort of the the most purely action driven. I think out of this of the series, but it's also like everything is executed almost perfectly. I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, but I but I don't, it doesn't feel like they've moved away from some of the more you know cultural, political, philosophical stuff that is kind of at the heart of the series as well. But you know, this is the one that uh, was like I say. I think there are a couple scenes from uh, the Sword of Vengeance, and then the bulk of this film were kind of re-edited, overdubbed, new musical soundtrack. Uh, you know, watching Shogun Assassin after watching the full series, that's the order I did it, it felt like Shogun Assassin is kind of like a, a highlight reel of, of kill scenes. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. it feels like it's maybe, I don't want to, I want to be too cruel, but, you know, dumbed down a little bit. I mean, it's like, I think they took a lot of that, mm-hmm. the slow parts of the Western or the Eastern philosophical stuff out. Not entirely, but but certainly they didn't want that to be an, an obstacle or just a slow or boring piece. They they just really kind of just keep the uh, the dial turned up to eleven, so to speak. I, I mean, what do you all have to say about Shogun Assassin as far as how it stands in relation to the rest of these or these? Well, the first films? thing I would say is, and your point is, sir. <laughs> that's that's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's it's not the a purpose. <laughs> that's the purpose. Okay, right. Just right to the good stuff, huh? Yeah. Jason's quite right. It is still quite <laughs> a very entertaining film. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I was interested to learn from this little book that that I've been reading that this this wasn't the first U.S. release of of no. a Lone Wolf and Cub film. Apparently, Columbia released one in 1974, the third film. Hmm. Yep. Um, Lightning Swords of Death, right. Yeah, and I Uh I actually had, I did not know that. That's something I learned quite literally just today. Well, Um, I I found a link from the Village Voice from 1974 that's in the show notes. So if you want to read uh, just a straight up reaction to some guy in New York, uh, I don't know if it's one of their main writers, um, but yeah, he reviewed it as as just this kind of you know 
crazy exploitation film. Um, and yeah, yeah, which is how it's kind of that. I kind of think that's what they were going for. They took yeah. something that might have a little bit more, uh, you know, different levels to it in, in its original context, but they obviously just pulled out all the all the sexy bits and all the violent, gory bits and stuck it together and just tried to make a, you know, just an interesting uh, action film, like a kind of a bit of a, an odd, <laughs> odd uh, sort of um, hyper-violent sort of samurai picture. So, yeah. you know, and I think it works on that level. Obviously, I think that the dynamics change with the narration, you know, the... yeah having the, the, the kid narrate over it, it makes it um, just kind of takes away, uh, uh, you know, certain elements of it. It just kind of changes the, the, the whole vibe of it, I think. But yeah, What do you think yeah. about that decision to, to make it like this story is told through the child's eyes? Is, does that work for you? Is it is it okay? Or, or would you have preferred a more straightforward approach? It, it feels a little arbitrary, but I think mm-hmm. it's largely because they need to... Like, it's very clearly an attempt to, like, how do we introduce this to Western audiences that don't want to sort through the Japanese culture? Right, right. Right. Like, it's partly we're going to cut out a lot of scenes that are strictly very Japanese, but it's also Mm -hmm. we need to explain to you what's going on in the most efficient way possible. Yeah. It's probably better to have the kids' narration than than Ito's, right? Yeah. yeah, I guess it was just a different way to help the the audience kind of emphasize em, empathize, sorry, with their um, with their um, yeah with the characters, and, and, and in a very economical way, just it's like a quick way of explaining the story and setting things up and giving you some some way of identifying with them. And I can't imagine the target audience was fifty year olds back <laughs> no. in nineteen eighty when this was coming out. <laughs> no, yeah, targeting no. to the youngers. Yeah, because yeah, uh, New World Pictures introduced, like released this. It was very much <laughs> drive-in fair, drive-in yeah. grindhouse fair. Yeah, and like I explained at the beginning, I mean, I I remember very distinctly the adverts for this on the television when I okay. was a young, you know, boy. They were so distinctive and, and stood out um, that that I just always remembered that and always wanted to see it. And mm-hmm. obviously, I, I didn't get the chance until many years later. And I didn't see Shogun Assassin until much, much later. I saw the original Japanese film first. The, so. people, the people behind it are interesting, actually. The like the guys that uh, like bought the rights and brought it to New World are connected to Andy Warhol. Hmm. Like they're they're offshoots of uh, Factory, and they before doing this, they made the the Edie Sedgwick documentary Chow Edie that came out in like '72. And this is like their next project. They were really big fans of this, these movies, but they were sort of like trying to negotiate how to get them released in the United States in the easiest way. And the deal with New World Pictures is what they could get. And hence Mm -hmm. the the sort of juiced up, more exploitation version of it. Apparently Roger Corman only took it on because he just was bemused by it. He thought it was just so crazy and weird that he just said, oh, go on, let's, let's put this out. Well, I'll keep in mind, he also released movies by Fellini and Herzog in the same period. Yeah. <laughs> okay. and, and Bergman, he released mm-hmm. Cries and Whispers in the United States. I'd, I'd be quite intrigued to see that Columbia film of the, the third one, like the, the English version. But yeah. I, I wonder why they didn't include it on as 
you know, in this set because they, it seems to be fairly definitive otherwise, but, but they didn't include that earlier English version. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, obviously some, some of it may just be limited to how many discs they want to produce and how much space they've got. Oh, and uh, there might be a rights issue, of course. But I, I, but I think I think I'm really glad that they put Shogun Assassin in here because I think that that seems like a pretty important connection. Uh, and it is just fascinating to see kind of how that th- those first two films were kind of repackaged for a Western audience. I'm looking at the post right now. It says sword and sorcery with a vengeance, which, you know, sword and sorcery was kind of a buzzword. That's when, you know, the Conan, the barbarian movies, and uh, there are certain uh, comics uh, subgenre. So I would, I wouldn't call this a sword and sorcery movie. I mean, swords for sure. Sorcery, not exactly, but, but, it's you know, that's, that's kind of the, the, they're tapping into that market. Right. It definitely has a lot of similarities to Conan, I suppose, in a way, in terms of the wandering sort of, you know, um, warrior who's just kind of wandering through the landscape, getting into adventures. I suppose it's um, it, it has a similarity in that sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me about it is it's interesting seeing that because the sound mix partly is so completely different on it, it feels yeah. a ton more violent to me. You know, that is interesting. I, I, well, and I think also just because it doesn't have the spacing between yeah. the, the, the big action sequences, it, 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 it really did feel, like I said, a, a highlight reel of just like one one big kill after another, which, again, for, for drive-in fare or for, you know, people who are looking to get just kind of jolted out of their seats, you know, that's the approach that that delivers, you know. But it does take on more of a, I think when it's presented in that way, it takes on more of a kind of a kitsch sort of a feel to it, doesn't it? Because when you take away the sort of the meat of the, the story and the characterization and the, uh, uh, and like you say, one thing that really strikes me about the, the first couple of films is the, the real use of silence a lot of times in the sound mix. I think the sound you know, the sound in those pictures is really important because sometimes rather than throw in lots of really thick music uh, during the action scenes and 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 a lot of sound effects and things, sometimes they, they just use a lot of silence mm-hmm. very effectively to create the atmosphere and to give it to create that tension in some of the scenes where he's being sort of, um, you know, um, snuck up on by intruders and things like that. But in Shogun Assassin, they they go for that, you know, just sticking on really thick music uh, mm-hmm. and doing those kind of obvious things that, that you do that, that maybe uh, may, sometimes some of the scenes come across as being more comical than they would when you're watching the Japanese one. The, the blood spurts kind of stand out more. It feels a lot gorier than the original films did, even though they're, it's the same footage. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is, but it, but it, it, right. It, it's just, I think it's just that kind of cumulative effect, you know. And I think, I think that kind of synthy, you know, kind of '80s action movie soundtrack, it it does kind of, you know, kitschy. I mean, my wife watched part of the movie. She said, oh, "This is just silly." It's like, well, I wouldn't say silly is the right word, but but that's that was kind of her her summary of it because I think it does just put it in that kind of you know cheesy type of context which again nothing wrong with it it's just it's a different style different presentation um so yeah uh let's go ahead and talk a little bit about um the the third film here as we kind of start 
winding down on our, our time slot. Uh, baby cart to Hades here. Um, I don't know, Jason, you want to kind of give us a little little overview of this one? Well, I can go really little and say they tried again and failed a second time. Or okay. Time. <laughs> um, I mean, well, you had you were hesitant earlier to call these set pieces. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, a lot of that is what this is. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a technically there's a continuation of the story, but that's not what these are really uh, after one. That's not really what these are really based around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I will say that three felt like a logical conclusion to the first three, like considering it in more of a trilogy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um, I agree. And then there's like we we get to this uh, next time, but there's a total different feel uh, moving forward. But uh, it has basically they keep trying to come at him, and he keeps messing them up, and he mm-hmm. saves people, and it's it's not going to win wars for story. Um, it's all about the visuals, especially that giant enormous fight scene near the end yeah yeah where where again referencing the james bond car Mm -hmm. the baby cart has a machine gun yeah Yeah. this is the one that reveals a million weapons in that car yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and this is uh, this is where we're starting to walk off of the kind of historic path Mm -hmm. that that authenticity to the period um and i don't even you know i you know I've been going through the manga. I think I'm through volume six of the manga. And mm-hmm. the fact is, I mean, when I first started reading the manga, I thought, oh, I, I thought I thought the movies were going to sort of be sort of a recreation of the narrative storyline. But the manga is very much an episodic serials. The mm-hmm. sequences are different. There's a lot of manga bits that never find their way into the movies. And, and basically, they're, they're recombined into a narrative thread. Uh, which was, you know, blessed by the creator, Katsuo Koike. Uh, he, he was like, the, you know, one of the co-creators of the manga. So he's very much involved. So there, there is a legitimate connection there. But but you're right. The, 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 to me, yeah, that, that final battle sort of almost starts to break the spell a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, like, hate it. I, do, I wouldn't say it was, like, bad. But it's like now we're getting into sort of more gimmicks rather than, you know, this the situation that, that I kind of spoke of at length earlier on, where mm-hmm. I'm really compelled by this figure who's, you know, subverting the system and is out to sort of retaliate with a measure of justice. Uh, here we've, we've kind of left some of that behind. You're right. I think, I think you see it in the beginning, but, but yeah. when it gets to the final scenes, that's just kind of over the top. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, his, his, his championing that girl is pretty, Right, another another young woman who's being exploited, uh, being sold into prostitution. Uh, he he recognizes her plight, and he he you know he takes pity on her, and he basically almost in a sort of a messianic way, he's the one who takes on the punishment that that she had coming, and it does get into some kind of <laughs> BDSM territory there as well, as he's strung up upside down, dunked in a tank, spun around, uh, you know, kind of kind of kinky stuff there, which I, apparently was kind of a mini phase um, uh, in Japanese uh, kind of pinkish type cinema, that, that mm-hmm. kind of thing happening in the early 70s. So you guys maybe have a little bit more exposure. I've mostly just read about that type of thing, but sir, uh, I'm a gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but you know, I mean, another again, another physically impressive bit that mm-hmm. uh, uh, he he pulled off there. Wakayama kind of put himself out there. I mean, he he was the guy who was uh, at least for some of those scenes uh, really strung up and and uh, put in a pretty uncomfortable situation. Now there is something that you just mentioned that we've okay. kind of didn't we've kind of ignored, and that was uh, Katsuo Kiyoke. Yes, okay. who was the writer of the manga as well as these three films. Right. Yeah. Well, credited screenwriter, how much he actually wrote. I, so to me, when you have the original creator writing these, you know, it's it's an extension of the overall story. Mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't gotten too deep into the manga yet. I'm several volumes in, but um, yes, it undoubtedly strays from the original uh boshido sense but at the end of the day it is the same creator making this version of the character yeah yeah. i mean he's making commercial entertainment in fact i think one of the the short features on the on disc three of their criterion set talks about he and his friend were out drinking one day and says we want to make a series let's let's do something that really kind of entertains people and so he's very much looking to to give folks something mm-hmm. that'll kind of grab them by the throat and, and actually keep them coming back for more so there's definitely that motive there mm-hmm. the, the, the film really sort of develops the relationship as well to the father and son and also you you really get the sense because we joked about the demon way in hell and and this sort of mindset of you know we're just going to take what comes and whatever happens but there's there's lots of things in the film that kind of contradict contradict that that there's a little bit more of a bond emotionally and and the fact that uh, ito uh, does go to the defense of these people who are who are being wronged or who are sort of defenseless or or being oppressed he does come to their aid quite often and i think that really gets developed more in this third film i don't know but i also i just wanted to mention too because i just read that this afternoon about the fact about the the baby cart with all the machine guns and everything inside that that in the films is introduced just as a surprise element at, in the big battle at the end yeah. But apparently um, it was introduced in the manga and there's a storyline that that leads to the development of those weapons and that weaponized cart, but but it's only in the manga. So so in the film it just kind of pops up out of nowhere. Yeah. And 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 it's sort of like you say, it kind of comes across as a bit like over the top and like, you know, hey, where did this come from? I mean, I thought there, yeah. there was an introduction of that and a development of uh-huh. that within the comic. So. Yeah, a, a cart that has some kind of guns that fire, that's fine. But I mean, you're surrounded, there's an army of hundreds of, 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 of fighters, you know? And so you, you reveal you've got some kind of Gatling gun thing in there. Well, you don't have like endless supplies of ammunition. You're firing <laughs> into this kind of you know sandy embankment and what, you've just taken out the entire gunnery <laughs> in one sweep there and now you're done? And now it's okay, now we got the swords. I, I think they could have just lowered the scale a little bit and that would not have lost me as much i mean yeah a cart that has a few guns hidden inside take people off that's fine but but you know it's it's kind of like 
you know, car chase scenes and things, when, when they get to a certain point of ridiculousness, then it becomes almost more of a distraction. Uh, again, I, I didn't hate it. I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I'm, I'm sold. I like the series. I like what it's doing. I like how it goes about its business. But I think it could have just been a little bit more effective if they'd kind of scaled it down and not try to blow us away with, with, with the massive odds against how he's going to survive this. That yeah, sometimes they get that. to, like you say, like he literally is faced with an army of like, you know, 300 guys. And, <laughs> and he's going to really slash his way and through. Right. And guns right. and swords and all sorts. And they and they all charge him at once. And yeah, of, of course, it completely strains credibility that no matter sure. how skilled. Uh, <laughs> and also, I always try to work out in the films about how the little boy manages to... <laughs> Because sometimes he's standing right beside his father when they get totally surrounded by like hundreds yeah. of blokes and they're and they're all attacking them and everything. And you think like that little boy couldn't possibly have got out from the middle somebody of would that. have just taken a cheap shot at the kid, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Or just he would have just got trampled underfoot by all these right. guys running around and stuff. But then after the big battle's over, he always just kind of pops up that he was hiding yeah. behind a bush or something. <laughs> and you just say, like, how yeah. did he possibly get out of that and manage to scurry over there and hide behind a tree or whatever? Right. So there, there are lots of elements like that where it does kind of strain credibility, but I suppose... And then the, yeah, and then, there's the, 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 and then there's those key sequences where he has killed somebody, but they have enough time to give a little speech and, and oh, kind of expound their philosophy of life. <laughs> while <they're playing. laughs> yeah. In pointing at the next episode, the next movie in this is like egregious for that. <laughs> well, people, we have a pretty people, good, people talk yeah. for 10 minutes in that. My favorite bit is at the end of the, the second film, uh, when the, the chap, one of those three oh, brothers and gets wound. his neck. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The neck is such a brilliant moment because he's there with this, you know, blood spurting out of his neck. He's on his deathbed and he's sitting there going, I've always wanted to hear that sound. I've always yes. wanted to give that make someone else's neck make that sound. But yes. how ironic now I'm hearing it and it's me. That's right. Cue the Alanis Morissette there. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of completely ridiculous and, yeah. and also just sort of like really just unique and bizarre and stuff. So it's just quite a, quite a great, great moment. I think yeah. he even says that at the end, doesn't he? This is just ridiculous. <laughs> what a laugh. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, yeah, you, you definitely have one of those scenes at the end here when Kanbei, who's the uh, he's the uh, Ronin that that meet they meet up at the beginning. It looks like there's going to be a big duel uh, between Ito and Kanbei, but then Ito grants calls it a draw and and says, you know, oh yeah, we're just yeah, we're going to just put this on pause, which obviously is a setup. You know that Kanbei is going to be coming back somewhere towards the end and they're going to have their big showdown. But but that's the setups. And so, you know, Kanbei, uh he's got he's got the sword all the way through his body, sticking out his back there. <laughs> and he gives this long uh yeah, almost I think there's even like a little flashback scene in there. It's 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 really quite extended, you know, and and one more time uh, Ito gets to do his um his second as in the executioner role where after Kanbei makes his speech and and recognizes that he has he did the right thing when he left his duty as the uh, as the guard of the palanquin and and fought for his life and actually 
turned the battle uh, into into a win for, for his side, he still was criticized and, and shamed because he left his station. It would have been better to be defeated and he would have stayed where he was supposed to rather than breaking rank and, and winning. So, I mean, that, again, just showing the perverse upside down ethics of this whole system. Uh, but after after he's gone all through of that, uh, Ito gets to swing the blade, and we have that nice subjective point of view shot of the head tumbling across the ground. You guys pick up on that, where you know the camera is just kind of rolling over, and uh, and then we see the, the the head there with the eyes looking off to the side and the blood spurting out the neck, and it's a, quite a quite a touching little moment there to to wrap up the festivities. Mm-hmm. So, and any other thoughts? So it sounds like uh, we would put number two as kind of the ultimate lone wolf and cub movie here. Uh, number one, uh, sort of vengeance, a pretty good setup, an origin story, and then with film number three, we're kind of getting into the formula. Is that kind of a sure a fair yeah. synopsis of where we're at in the series? Well, there are plenty of other pleasures to be had, and I definitely uh, look forward to picking up uh, with with. Uh, four which is uh is that the demons one or that's the baby cart in peril i believe peril. in <laughs> peril so we'll uh we'll pick that up in a couple weeks but uh, final comments as we just kind of wrap things up here uh I, how quickly is this going to be online i will try to get this edited and out there fairly soon is okay. there a deadline of some no, sort no, no, or, I, I was yeah, just yeah. um if you didn't see in the facebook group um yeah. the oh, yeah. Bundle, for um lone wolf and cub as well as other uh books by kaoki is on as of right now only for another 19 days okay yeah it'll definitely be out while the while the sale is still on yeah it's got the lady snowblood series it's got a whole bunch of stuff i've just started dipping into it but it's pretty fantastic absolutely well worth the money yeah Digital versions, just to clarify, so no one thinks they're getting books. Yeah, yeah, yeah digital, yeah. right? You're right. Yeah, they are digital versions, but like I, I was hoping to dip into, but I never got a chance this week to dip into any of the, the manga because I only have the first volume. So I, I mm-hmm. was that your post? I, I was very uh, grateful to see that because that's a great opportunity there. People yeah. should go, go and bite their hand off there, definitely. Yeah, I, I have to think Humble Bundle is kind of growing their ranks of uh, their mailing list, at least, if not active subscribers out of this. I, I was very impressed. My daughter, who works in the manga industry, she's a letterer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she actually told me about it the day before you put your post up, Jason. So I yeah. already had that tucked safely, but I was really glad that she posted it there. Well, I totally ha- recommend it. Yeah. 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 It's a hat tip to Ryan Gallagher because okay. he had shared yeah. it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And Ryan, I, I remember that was what would be part of my introduction comments. But Ryan, I know, was a real strong enthusiast mm-hmm. of this series. We we were talking about it in Criterion Cast years ago when there were still just rumors about these films coming out. So that was yeah. definitely my first exposure or awareness of it. And uh, yeah, I, I know Ryan's got the whole Bound series and everything. And, and uh, he's definitely been big, big proponent of these films in particular for yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Is it worth mentioning too, David? Because I just wanted to comment too on just the absolute how how gorgeous the transfers are on the cartoon. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Shogun Assassin is a little bit more rough around the edges, uh, but I don't think that's a problem because it gives it more of that kind of grindhouse. Yeah, it's exactly what you'd like it to be. Because yeah. yeah, you're right. right. Yeah, but the first, the all, well, all six films in the set, the the transfers are just absolutely um, 
perfect, like just really gorgeous transfers. Uh, and I decided to mention that because we haven't really yeah. talked about the particularly in the, the criterion release. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly where I feel like these films kind of surpassed my expectations. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, the Zadoichi films, for instance, um, typically look pretty good and, and the transfers are fine. Um, but there was a there's a real palpable beauty to these films. I mean, some of the Zadoichi films feel a little bit more pedestrian. I mean, they, they will have their moments and, and some are you know much better than others. But yeah, even though we maybe took a, a few little uh, knocks on some of the uh, kind of loopier elements in, in the third film there, uh, it's still gorgeous. And, and the skill, the, the cinematography, the editing, all of those elements uh, make these films extremely rewatchable and, and very highly recommended. So they are available on the Criterion channel if you're a subscriber there and don't quite know if you want to plunk down the coin for the actual uh, blu-ray discs but uh and then the transfers on the channel are solid but i think the blu-rays really do uh shine and, and are you know highly recommended if you if you like this type of film and want to get into it so yeah maybe we'll have a little bit more to say about some of the other supplements and features yeah. it's not a, a ton on the on the next episode but there's some cool stuff so we'll save that for episode two and like i say we'll be recording that i think we've got plans to do at the weekend of american thanksgiving so later on in november we'll get the crew together again and we'll finish up our talk about lone wolf and cub so uh any other bits people want to throw out there or final words greetings updates of any sort before we wrap it up (laughs) i accidentally paid for another year of soundcloud so i guess i better record some episodes of uh of film ruminations there yeah. yeah definitely okay well yeah if you're looking for guests jason uh, let me know i'll be happy to sit oh. down on one with you yeah. well that's a good idea <laughs> okay it sounds good all right well folks thanks for uh, listening in uh, appreciate the, the support got some really nice feedback uh, from people who've sent me some messages uh, emails tiktoks etc so i do appreciate uh, those little kind words that keep me going here thank you three guys yes. richard uh, jason and david good to connect with you and it's been a fun conversation as always yeah, nice see you in a couple weeks sounds good to me all right guys have a great day and we'll be yep. back to you soon folks everybody bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye. Oh